0: It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
1: Ocean Breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing.
2: Welcome to the podcast, formerly known as Access Atlanta, from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. You may have noticed the name on our logo has changed a little bit. That's just a placeholder because we're currently developing a brand new show that will have a new name and a new sound. And this week, we're going to start things off with a little sneak peek at what we're working on. Here, I'm joined by our food, dining, and living editor, Legaia Figueres, and our entertainment reporter, Rodney Ho, to talk about some of the week's hottest topics first up on this week's episode we'll look at some hot topics and the first thing is the college football playoff which atlanta was just named as host city for uh in 2025 so that's a big deal especially coming on the heels of losing music midtown this year
3: yeah i think this is the second time i think they got we got it in 2018 so this is we're the first city to get it twice
2: Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, because I think it's because it's still a fairly new thing, right? Yes, it is. Um, Yeah, it's like I I admit I'm not the biggest sports guy, I I don't know my football that well. I grew up in South Carolina, so you sort of get some of it by osmosis. And going to Clemson University, of course, it's it's absolutely unavoidable. But, uh, you know, it's it's a big deal to get the playoff. That's, uh, you know.
3: And they usually attach a concert or two uh, to it as well in some parties. Oh, yeah. And there's always events surrounding it. Not quite as big as the Super Bowl was, but uh, still a big right. deal.
1: Yeah, but, you know, I mean, it feels like this is a little bit like, okay, let's uh, – Stop. Then talking about what we've lost as right. a city, you know. That.
2: Yeah, that's true. And you know, it's funny that that this crosses so many different beats here at the at the newspaper because uh, our folks, uh, our politics team, uh, wrote about it in the Jolt, uh, saying, you know, don't don't be surprised if Brian Kemp uses this in his uh, his campaign. Uh, pointing to economic development and things like this, in, in the wake right. of the loss uh, of Music Midtown, exactly.
3: Shouldn't, we don't need to talk about Music Midtown. We got this. Everybody, <laughs> yeah. turn. Well, he your hasn't eyes. really talked about it at all. He just basically has ignored it.
2: Yeah, so far. Yeah, yeah. he doesn't we'll need to. We'll see what happens. But yeah, it's like the the, the folks uh, on the politics team seem to think it it may come up at some point. Uh, but yeah, they as they wrote in the jolt, they spoke with uh, one of the Democratic candidates for for another office, and and they pointed out the difference between this and Music Midtown is that Music Midtown, of course, was being held in a public park, which they can't ban weapons or anything like that, whereas this would be held in a private facility, so they can. Right. So, But they did have, you know,
3: there's that outdoor space that they apparently can't stop guns from being the Home Depot space in the outside of the city's bends. yeah. And and that was addressed at the time.
2: Oh, was it? Was it because yeah. that that's a public space? Well, I mean, I mean,
3: that space is outdoor public park space. Well, I don't, sense, I don't know. Right, if, I mean, I but
2: if it's not public property, I'm wondering if I, I
3: saw it addressed as something that w- it was in the store. Some of the stories I've read was right. related to that Home Depot space, which isn't used very often for concerts, but usually just when right. when it's attached to like a football game.
2: Yeah, it's sort of sort of a gathering spot, really. Before, just just for big events there. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Do we know the in terms of like economic what's the estimate that this will bring to Atlanta? Oh, Do we know oh, how many they millions? Throw, they always bring dollar amounts. Who knows? Yeah, how I wonder what they're saying. Anyway. Right.
2: Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure that we we've reported, you know, last time it, it was here was in twenty eighteen and I'm sure we reported a. Yeah, uh, the
3: chamber, they always come up with some large number and does yeah. it really mean anything to the average person what that number means? I have no idea. So Our, it's and just and, a number. and I, maybe
1: maybe we're the wrong group to be talking about this, but are we in the running for other major sports events in the next few years? I feel like they were t- thinking about t- bringing the um, NC2A basketball. Um,
2: the March Madness? Yeah. Final four I think we're always hunting for mm-hmm. them, oh, always. Yeah. Yeah. But the finals, I'm, I'm talking finals. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, we. I'm sure. We're probably in the running for some future one um, because we've done it before. Um, And then they're going to play some World Cup. That's uh, what I'm thinking. Yeah, that was fairly recent. Uh, I think that was this year that they announced that we would be one of the host cities for the World Cup. I'm not even sure what the year is. I don't know how far they are out in planning that but i imagine it's pretty far in the future still
3: (laughs) yeah i don't know if we'll ever get the mlb all-star game anytime soon after what (laughs) happened yeah
2: good good point. oh yeah that's true yeah (laughs) that's a whole other kettle of fish yes right
3: okay so anyway well that's great we got college football players yeah yeah and that's
2: coming uh january 6 2025 so, yeah. Two and a um, half years
3: from now, so you got yes. plenty of time to plan. Yeah, you do. You've got plenty
2: <laughs> of time to plan for that. And, and of course, we'll be reporting any uh, announcements we have about that, uh, you know, when it gets closer to the date. I'm sure there'll be concerts attached, there'll be parties, there'll be events. It's It'll be a big deal. It always is. So, uh, the other hot topic this week uh, was another one that's only sort of peripherally entertainment uh adjacent I guess um, and that's that uh, who knew that Mariah Carey had a house in Sandy Springs I did not
3: I did not either and uh, yeah, I technically should follow this stuff and I had no idea so there you go yeah, yeah I knew nothing until I saw the police report
2: yeah I was shocked well uh, her home in Sandy Springs was burglarized and it was part of apparently a string of burglaries that go back to last October um, her house was burglarized on July 27th uh, while she was on vacation at her other home in the Hamptons, I'm sure one of
3: she's just got many, many, many homes. I'm sure, yeah. I, who knows how much time she actually spends in Atlanta? Right. I mean, I don't know. if We do you ever get sightings of Mariah Carey in Atlanta? It doesn't seem like it's that common. No, so, uh, no. She, maybe she just comes here and just hangs out in her house. I have no idea. Well, you does. know, maybe
2: maybe she comes here to to record and that, wants that's to have probably a place. True. You know, her little pied a terre in in Sandy Springs. So. Yeah. <laughs>
3: I wouldn't have suspected the Sandy Hampton, Springs. Hampton, Sandy but... Springs, you know, same yeah. difference.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I, I was just shocked to read that, that Mariah Carey and Sandy Springs.
3: Yeah, there's been a whole string of, I guess, uh, you know, I think a gang has been targeting celebrity homes. And Marlo Hampton, who's a cast member of Real Housewives of Atlanta, had her house broken into. Right. Uh, but I think she scared them off, but it was still um, pretty frightening for her. And she's ta- been public about, you know, telling celebrities, don't, you know, don't show all your your houses to on Instagram and stuff. But the thing right. is, you know, people, you know, who are pretty aggressive and can figure out where people live are just going to figure it out and they, just, they have to find some way to break through the security once they know where you live.
2: Yeah. I mean, I would imagine most people like that probably live in a gated community at the very least. Right. You know, so. And that,
3: that adds an extra challenge. I don't know if Mariah's house was in a gated community or not. Yeah. so.
2: I don't know, but I mean, obviously there's been a string of burglaries and they were looking at places that, you know, that would have things that were of value, I imagine. So yep. yeah, but it just fascinated me that, that this, and, and that was of course a big story on our website, AJC.com, go check it out uh, and you can find out more about uh, Mariah Carey's house and about this string of burglaries that are going on in Sandy Springs and keep yourself safe. Along with Rodney Ho, Ligaya Figueres, I'm Shane Harrison, and we'll talk to you again next week. That's a sample of what we're working on, so stay tuned in the coming weeks for more of the new podcast format. In the meantime, we'll be revisiting some of our favorite interviews from our first four years, and as we do that, we'll continue our mission to get you ready for the weekend with a roundup of some of the fun, entertaining, and educational things to do in and around Atlanta in the coming days. Let's get started with one of those events and a look at where to watch football with friends. When Carlos Santana released 1999 Supernatural, the then newly inducted Rock and Roll Hall of Famer's 18th studio album, it represented the Mexican native's commercial pinnacle thanks to a handful of hit singles and an array of high-profile guest artists. Not only did the album sell 15 million copies, it racked up eight Grammy Awards, including Album of the Year. The spark for this wildfire of crossover success was the smash single, Smooth, a songwriting collaboration with Matchbox 20's singer Rob Thomas. In late 2021, the 74-year-old guitarist released another collaboration with Thomas called Blessings and Miracles, and now he's back on the road and bringing his latest tour to Lakewood Amphitheater on August 24th. Read our interview with Santana and Thomas online at AJC.com. It's football season, and that means it's time to put on your team jersey, gather with friends, and cheer. For some, it's going to be a designated viewing bar where fans meet to support their team of choice, whether it be their school, hometown, or just a random team for no real reason. And for others, they just want a great bar to enjoy a game and have a beer. We'll take a look at where to go to cheer on your team with a look at sports bars that cater to specific teams in this week's Go Guide on August 19th, or you'll find it online at AJC.com. Stay tuned for more events later in the podcast, and after the featured conversation, we'll take a look at what the AJC is bringing you this week, both online and in print. But first, we'll hear an interview with Chuck Lavelle from November 2021. As the de facto music director of the Rolling Stones during the last 40 years of touring, Georgian Lavelle not only handled keyboard duties, he frequently took charge of the music on stage as a sort of conductor. In performance, he kept an eye contact with the late Charlie Watts, since any signal by the music director has to be telegraphed by the drummer. They had a unique relationship, and the loss of the legendary drummer hit him hard. But the show goes on, and the Rolling Stones and Lavelle performed at Mercedes-Benz Stadium on November 11, 2021. Bo Emerson spoke with Lavelle about the Stones and about his tree-farming life just outside of Macon, and we'll hear that conversation on this week's podcast. And keep in mind that the interview we're about to hear is from last year, so any dates and events that may come up are in the past.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, we have a treat. We have Chuck Lavelle, Birmingham native, Macon resident, a uh, tree farmer, a uh, co-founder of the Mother Nature Network, and a longtime uh, music director for the Rolling Stones with us. Thank you so much,
0: Chuck, for joining us. It's a real pleasure, Bo. I'm looking forward to playing Atlanta pretty soon here. Well, well, we're looking forward to having you here. And and, uh,
4: it's going to be a little bit different this time, I'm sure. And I was going to ask you about playing playing shows without Charlie Watts.
0: Well, as you can imagine, we all are still pining and, and very sad over the loss of Charlie Uh, we knew that he was ill. We knew that he was not going to be able to make this tour. And he had already given Steve Jordan his blessing uh, to do that. And so we all expected a full recovery uh, for Charlie. That's what we were told by the doctor, but we, you know, it was going to take some time. And then as I'm in the car headed to the airport uh, for rehearsals, the news came uh, that he had passed away and it, it was just devastating. And I had to Hide my face several times in the airport, just getting so emotional. But um, you know, we Charlie Watts would never want to be the reason this band would stop. I can tell you that we all knew that uh, full well, and so you know, we we took a day or two uh, to just talk about Charlie and and share some stories and and grieve and uh, and then we, we carried on and that's what we've done. We honor Charlie, we celebrate him at every show, um, visually and with a, a little short uh, bit of comments that Mick gives to the audience. So um, he's still with us, you know, he, he definitely has a presence at every show. And let me comment on Steve Jordan, you know, Steve Jordan. and Charlie were friends. Um, for a long, long time. And, it, and as you know, Bo, uh, Steve worked with Keith on his solo projects. Expensive and so, yeah. yeah, exactly. And he's, he's been part of the Stones family. So definitely the Logic choice. You know, Steve is, is a fantastic drummer, uh, a slightly more aggressive style of drumming. And so that uh, we're adjusting to him. He's adjusting to us, but it's really, really working out well.
4: You know, when you when you looked at Charlie Watts playing, he looked like the most relaxed individual you would ever see on a stage in front of 50,000 people. Um,
0: I, I guess it's slightly different when you look at Steve now. Absolutely, yeah. Charlie had, here's the thing about Charlie. He got a very big sound because he used big drumsticks, heavy drumsticks, but he had a light touch so that delicate touch but with those heavy sticks made for this you know monstrous sound it it was quite an unusual thing now Steve uh, plays a lot harder physically harder and and, uh, as I said earlier a slightly more aggressive style of drumming Um, but it's serving the band very well and here's the thing you know Steve did an amazing amount of of homework. When we were rehearsing, he recorded on his iPhone everything we did. And he would go back to the hotel and listen and adjust the next day if if adjustments were needed. And and he certainly was very familiar with certain parts that have to be there, you know, on the drums that Charlie did that are so vital and important. So he he studied, he studied hard. He's a musicologist anyway, Steve. Uh, uh, You know, he can talk about... Uh, the the history of jazz, the history of uh, rock and roll, the history of soul and R&B. So he's very, very well-rounded as a musician.
4: Now, you've been the de facto, is the word they use, music director for decades, uh, and have uh, been on every Stones record since 1983. When you're the music director, you're not just taking notes on the order of songs and things like that. What, What does that involve?
0: Well, it's a a moniker that uh, sort of morphed over a long period of time. It started really back in uh, 1989 when we did the Steel Wheels tour. And uh, my first tour, as you probably know, Bo, was in 1982. And there was no touring between 82 and 89. So that was a pretty long gap, even though we did record two albums during that time. But here's the thing. In 82, uh, every night was the same set. We didn't change any songs from show to show. And so when we grouped to start rehearsals uh, in 89 for Steel Wheels, and it wasn't just me, but I certainly made the point, uh, hey guys, you know, you got a deep well of material and we need to explore that. And we need to bring some deep tracks into the set. And they all agreed. And so... I began taking these notes every time we would work up a song that we hadn't played in a long time or the band hadn't played in a long time. And I would chart out the song uh, by hand, uh, make any notes. Did we change the arrangement for any reason? Uh, Was there horns on it? What were the horn parts? Uh, Were there background vocals? What were they? Uh, And so forth. And so every time we would do a song, I would make this chart and make these notes. And that began and has gone throughout my whole career, almost 40 years with the band. So now I have these two encyclopedic notebooks uh, that all have plastic sheets with my handwritten notes in there. Uh, and, you know, it's like uh, from A to M and and then, you know, the rest, the other book goes to Z and uh, we do use that as a reference from time to time. If we hadn't done a, song, and we can look back, and I can help. So that, you know, it It gave, the, Chuck knows the bridge, Chuck knows what, what was the key, where does, where does the solo go, Chuck, you know, so I began to, you know, kind of be the go-to guy for those issues, and then it began to translate into the stage, especially when Charlie was alive, you know, Charlie was a jazz guy, and so sometimes, as a rock and roller, he wasn't sure when the bridge was coming, or when there was going to be a change of some type. And so he would physically look at me to give signals, hand signals, nods, you know, uh, about when these changes were were coming. And so now with Steve, not so much, because Steve has a great head for arrangements. He knows rock and roll. And so I I don't direct him as much as I directed Charlie, but I still do direct some endings here and there and direct a few things. Well, that's a pretty darn
4: responsible position, isn't it?
0: Well, you know, hopefully i help keep the train on the track sometimes. And, and look, this is the Rolling Stones, and you can expect a derailment every now and then. Okay.
4: <laughs> you know, I think about um, the, the, you know, the keyboard players, Nicky Hopkins, Ian Stewart, Billy Preston. Uh, you were basically um, auditioning with Ian Stewart right next to you back in, uh, what, 81 or something like that?
0: That's right, yeah.
4: What was that like?
0: Well, you know, let me uh, give you the story. It, the I had had the band Sea Level. Sea Level had broken up. Um, I had a little trio at the time. This would have been 1980 but going into 81. And... Uh, we, had, My wife had inherited this property, and so I began this interest in forestry and the environment, and I started studying that. The trio I had really wasn't going anywhere. The phone wasn't re- ringing for recording sessions, and I came home one afternoon and uh, just wanted to vent to my wife, Rose Lane, and I said, Rosie, you know, I'm never going to stop music, but the phone's not ringing for sessions. This little trio is really not going anywhere. Uh, I'm really interested in the land and what we're doing. So maybe I should just focus on that. And, you know, I'm going to keep my chops up and practice. And so she listened very intently and patiently. And then finally she said, well, Chuck, guess what? The Rolling Stones called you today. (laughs) And I thought it was a joke. You know, I did. I, I said, honey, I don't need this right now. You know, I, I'm serious. <laughs> she said, Chuck, I'm serious. Here's the number. They called an hour ago. Now go go down. And and I did. And it was eventually Ian Stewart that I got on the phone with. And I was flabbergasted. I said, well, Stu, yeah, man, are you kidding me? I, of course, I want to come up for an audition. I, I've got a little gig with my trio this weekend. Uh, can I make it on Sunday or Monday. Well, we'd really like to have you there tomorrow. <laughs> man, so I, I had to call the club. Of course, they were very supportive. You know, go, man, go. You know, it's a great opportunity. And, <laughs> and it was supposed to be a one day audition. I stayed for three days and everything went great. And I thought I had the gig, but I came back home. The phone didn't ring for quite some time. Finally, Stu called me and he said, Chuck, everybody loves you. Um, but they they're going to keep uh, Ian McLagan for this tour. Uh, of course, some of your listeners will know that uh, McLagan was in the Faces with Ronnie Wood, so there was a personal relationship there. And Mac had also done the previous tour with the band, so um, you know they kept Mac for the '81 tour. Uh, but interestingly, they came and did an unannounced show in Atlanta at the Fox Theater during that tour. And Stu called me up a, a few days before and he said, We're coming to your backyard. Would you like to come up and have a bash with the band? Yeah, I'd love that. So, uh, you know, I came up and uh, it was great to see the guys again. I think I sat in on maybe three or four songs in the middle of the set uh, and, and it was just fantastic. And then at the end of that tour, Stu called me back and he said, we're gonna do Europe next year and we want you to go. So that was the beginning of my official duties with the band.
4: That uh, must've been somewhat, uh, somewhat exciting.
0: <laughs> it was, it was such a thrill. And, you know, I'll, I'll share this with you. I've always been kind of a goal oriented person. My dad was very much that way and he kind of passed that thought down to me. And so when I decided to make a career out of playing the piano, um, I set a couple of goals, and one goal was to be in a really great band, um, hopefully a successful band, by the age of 20, and then to go to another level by the age of 30. and And I was able to to make that. You know, it, it, I was 20 when I joined the Alman Brothers band, and I had just turned 30 when uh, I officially started work with the Stones.
4: And we ought to say that uh, when you joined the Allman Brothers Band, you laid down one of the best piano solos ever recorded in rock and roll music uh, in Jessica. And I, I know that song uh, is among your favorites, but it's probably among the favorites of a lot of other people out there. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you, Dickie Betts. You know, (laughs) that was was Dickie's song. Uh, He brought it to the band for the Brothers and Sisters uh, record when I started working with the brothers. And, uh, you know, they were gracious to ask me, hey, you know, this is our instrumental for the album. Uh, We usually do an instrumental on every record and and we want to feature you. And so, you know, I was happy to help work on the arrangement for it. And, uh, and it was just a real thrill. And, you know, it, it came together quite nicely. And, and uh, thankfully, people still listen to it. Oh, yeah.
4: Now, I want to uh, ask about uh, the, uh, this is the 40th uh, anniversary of Tattoo You. And so there's this big package that's been uh, um, uh, pr- uh, promoted and, and re-released. But uh, I don't think it's got any um, uh, Chuck Lavelle on it. I think that was before you were in the studio with him. Isn't that right?
0: That is correct, yes. Uh, Although they did pull out four or five um, unreleased tracks, uh, two of which we did in rehearsal, one of which we have played in public um, on the first three shows. Uh, And that's, interestingly, a cover by the the Shy Lights, if you remember the Shy Lights. Yeah. it's called uh, Troubles are Coming. Uh-huh. And it's, it's a it's got a, a really cool little uh, beat to it and and it's fun. So we've we've tested that one a little bit. And the other one is called um, uh, what is it? Um, uh, uh, something about the of love. I can't remember the title right now, but uh, we've rehearsed that one, but we haven't brought it to the uh, to the stage yet. I think we will before the tour's out. And then there, there's some other tracks. Interestingly, one is a reggae version of Start Me Up. <laughs> living, in, living in the Heart of Love. That's the name of the song, Living in the Heart of Love. And, and, but a reggae version of Start Me Up, is it's kind of weird. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We'll continue with more of our conversation with Chuck Lavelle, but first, here's more of our list of things to do and see. Two of the three remaining living cast members from the original Star Trek series will be attending this year's Dragon Con convention William Shatner and Walter Koenig. Shatner, now 91, played Captain James D. Kirk in the series and subsequent films, and last fall flew into space on Jeff Bezos' rocket ship Blue Origin. Koenig, 85, was the Enterprise's navigator Pavel Chekhov. Both Star Trek veterans have appeared at Dragon Con numerous times. Chatner, in fact, showed up as recently as last year. Kanig last appeared at the convention in 2018. Nichelle Nichols, another original Star Trek member, died recently at age 89. She was at a Dragon Con parade marshal in 2016. Check out the Georgia Entertainment Scene blog at ajc.com for more about Dragon Con, including an upcoming story on the ever popular parade and a link to the full list of this year's celebrity guests. ATL Live will return for a third year to Mercedes-Benz Stadium, bringing some really big names to Atlanta. Billy Joel will headline the show on Friday, November 11, with Lionel Richie and Cheryl Crow joining him. On Saturday, November 12th, Chris Stapleton leads the lineup with Miranda Lambert, Dwight Yoakam, and Katie Pruitt opening the show. Tickets for the event went on sale last week, and there are still plenty available for now. Find a link to the ticket site and more info online at AJC.com. Now it's time for this week's adoptable pet from the folks at Lifeline, who run the Fulton and DeKalb shelters, along with the Lifeline Community Animal Center. Simp is simply easygoing as it gets. He's a very low-key fellow who isn't in a hurry about anything. The five-year-old is content just sitting back and enjoying life's ride. Human connection is his favorite thing of all. Pets on the chest, head and rump, it's all good with him. Although he likes to stay close, Semp understands that even humans need personal space from time to time, and he's happy to oblige. For his day-to-day activities, Simp enjoys a healthy balance of zoomies around the yard and relaxing inside for an afternoon snooze. His mellow demeanor will capture your heart instantly. You can meet Simp today at the Lifeline Community Animal Center at 3180 Presidential Drive in Atlanta. And you'll find a photo of SEMP and a direct link for more info on the story page for this podcast on AJC.com.
1: Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Another day is here and you're
4: ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it?
2: Get unlimited digital access to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution so you know what's really going on, and you're helping us fulfill our mission to bring you the news that's important to you. Subscribe today at subscribe.ajc.com podcast, and your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com podcast to join the community for just 99 cents. Let's head back to our interview with Chuck Lavelle. Well, you all supposedly
4: rehearsed eighty tunes uh, to be uh, uh, to be ready for the show. Were any of them not in the uh, Chuck Lavelle Encyclopedia of Rolling Stones uh,
0: Tablature, or what? So, what is this, man? Did you sneak into the rehearsals? And, and <laughs> how do you know all this information? Uh, I have my sources. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a journalist, so okay. Um, well, you know, I mean, I'm trying to think of. Uh, we've brought 19th Nervous Breakdown uh, to the stage. Uh, that goes way, way back, as you know. Uh, and we had rehearsed that song in the past, even back when Bill Wyman was still around, you know, for uh, in Steel Wheels era. But we never brought it to the stage for whatever reason. And uh, this time around, I don't know if it was Steve's drumming, maybe, that, you know, he, he kind of pushed uh, very hard on that song and and it sounds great. And so that's been a fun one to bring in. Uh, Get Off My Cloud, of course, we've done that in the last few tours occasionally, but that's a good one. Um, And, uh, you know, yeah, we did go deep. I mean, um, I'm trying to think of some of the uh, more rare ones, Uh, Mixed Emotions, which was on Steel Wheels, and uh, we've rarely played that. We haven't brought that to the stage, but you know, when you're rehearsing 80 songs, and you know that only nineteen are going to make it to the stage. Uh, that that's the way you, you have to start constructing the set. You know. Well, I'm guessing with some of
4: those old ones, you had to uh, you had to get out the pen and paper and uh, yeah, and out, uh, write down a couple of more arrangements.
0: Absolutely, and I had to uh, write you know these unreleased tracks like uh, "Troubles Are Coming" and uh, "Living in the Heart of Love." I, I had to chart those out and and add to the. To the book. Uh, but yeah, you know, I had to bring some of those pieces of paper out and uh, my, my technician is a great guy named uh, Kurt Wolock. Uh, Kurt, give me the sheet on troubles. Uh, give me the sheet on this. It rocks off, uh, you know. So uh, he, he has those handy and he can pop it up to me on, on the uh, keyboard rig pretty quickly. Now, we should tell
4: the folks listening that uh, uh, you are uh, on a brief break right now and you're back in Georgia. Um, and I take it you're down on the farm right there.
0: You bet, man. It's been glorious. I got here day before yesterday, late in the evening, and uh, the weather has been amazing. Uh, it's just so great to you know, to be out here in the country and uh, took a nice ride around on my four-wheeler yesterday to check out all the territory. And it's it, we've had a lot of rain, as you know, and so uh, the vegetation looks fantastic and uh, all my uh, forest and trees are, are growing nicely. So it's great to be here for a minute and enjoy that before I have to go back out. So how many acres do you have now? We have 4,000 acres now, and uh, that's not all contiguous by any means. The largest contiguous tract is about 2,800 acres. And then we have some outlying tracks that vary in size from uh, 50 to 150, 200, 300 acres here and there.
4: So you've been on the chainsaw all day and all night. <laughs> uh,
0: actually, we will be on the chainsaw later today. Uh, uh-huh. I, I actually have, you know what, it's going to wind up being tomorrow, but uh, I have a good friend of mine that's a logger and i had, I guess it was three years ago, we had a drought and I lost several really nice hardwood trees along the road that goes from our home to our lodge and what we call the Bullard House, which is a historic 1835 farmhouse. And uh, so it's a little bit more than a chainsaw can handle. So my logger agreed to come and cut these dead trees down so we can stack them up and then I can begin to uh, pretty up the entrance way, if you will. Uh, this next season, when I get off tour, I'll be planting a lot of uh, ornamental trees and different trees to, to make the entrance between the, our house and the place that we house our guests uh, uh, to make it look really nice. So some dogwoods and cherry trees and that kind of thing.
4: I just want to make sure you had on those gloves just in case that chainsaw <laughs> is
0: out of control because you need those fingers. <laughs> Well, you know, people ask me, Bo, does the Lloyds of London insure your hands? You know, do you? <laughs> no, man, you know, common sense insures my hands. Uh, I love the physical work. I'm never going to give that up. You know, I, I, I love, I, I try to stay in shape anyway, but, you know, hauling around a chainsaw and cutting wood and chopping firewood and all that is fantastic exercise. And, and I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it very carefully. So, no All worry. right.
4: All right. Good, good. Now, you are a co-founder of the Mother Nature Network, which uh, recently uh, got bought uh, and uh, got uh, 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 put together with uh, Treehugger. Yeah. Um, and uh, but but back uh, back a while ago, y'all uh, sponsored the uh, White House Correspondence Jam. Um, and uh, I'm just curious whether that's going to ever happen again. It sort of disappeared for a while.
0: Well, it was so fun. And, and just to elaborate a little bit on what it was, of course, you know exactly what it was, but you have the White House Correspondents' Dinner every year up in Washington, D.C. And so my partner, Joel Babbitt, said, you know, what if we uh, put together a show uh, the night before the White House Dinner, uh, the Correspondents' Dinner, and, and call it the White House Jam? and we'll invite uh, journalists that have, you know, a lot of journalists have bands and you were participating in it. Uh, and and then we escalated to where, okay, we'll still do that, but let's, let's find a headliner or two. One year we had my friend Mike Mills from uh, REM, the bass player, and uh, JB, the lead singer and guitar player from Widespread Panic, and myself uh, headline it. One year we had Billy Bob Thornton's Band the Boxmasters uh, to headline. One year we had the the Bacon Brothers, Kevin and <laughs> Michael Bacon, and they were great. Man, I got to tell you. Uh, so that was it. Was a wonderful tradition. Uh, you're right. A company called Dot Dash bought both properties, the Mother Nature Network and Treehugger.com, and they combined them together and just kept the Treehugger name. I'm still a consultant uh, with the organization. They're doing a great job. Um, You know, wonderful environmental information and news uh, that you can get on treehugger.com. And uh, we'll see. You know, of course, we've been in the COVID era. And even if if we hadn't sold, I think it would have been difficult to to have that, um, you know, the last couple of years. But uh, I'll be talking to Treehugger and my friends there to see if we can't revive it.
4: Now, the uh, up until a little while ago, you had a, 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 a man from Georgia, Sonny Perdue, in charge of USDA, and you were uh, you had sort of an inside line into uh, agricultural policy uh, from your fellow uh, uh, Georgia resident. Uh, that's uh, uh, that's uh, different now with Mr. Vilsack in uh, in charge. But I wonder, uh, uh, do you still stay involved there, and do you get uh, a chance to chat at all with those folks?
0: Absolutely. Um, I knew Secretary Vilsack back when, you know he was in uh, previous administrations, and he uh, he and I were at several different meetings together and whatnot. So I've yet to communicate with him directly uh, since he's been in this administration, but I feel like I will be. Um, and all due to uh, Governor and Secretary Perdue uh, and he did, I think he did some very good things for agriculture, but not as much for forestry. You know, he concentrated on agriculture, as you know, and in and, and that era when farmers were hurting, uh, that administration uh, came up with a lot of funding uh, to keep farmers going. So, you know, I appreciate that. And I think that's great. We love the American farmer. But uh, forestry got a little bit neglected, and I would like to see that uh, come back into the picture especially now that we're beginning to talk more about climate change, global warming, Uh, forestry can play a tremendous part in that. And of course, we all see the devastation of wildfires in California and other states out West. And we certainly need to address that um, going forward. Uh, We were just in California and man, oh man, you know, they've, they set a record every year about the largest fires, the most devastating fires. Yeah. I have a fledgling television program that you probably know about, Bo, called America's Forests with Chuck Lavelle. We're on PBS. And we did a segment in California, uh, I guess it was a little over a year ago, where we went to paradise. If you recall that horrible fire, uh, the campfire, they called it, devastated that whole community. And I've never seen anything like that. I mean, and in addition to seeing the devastation of the fire, this was at a time when you had uh, the incredible heat going on and they were rationing electricity. Right. And so we're driving through paradise and there's no electricity except for those that may have a generator running. And it was eerie. It was just very strange. And, you know, we have to address this, man. We have to uh, use some techniques to reduce these terrible wildfires that are happening out there. And uh, I'm hoping this administration will be uh, forward thinking in that.
4: Well, uh, I'm hoping the same thing. And uh, the uh, I wonder whether y'all are using any sort of um, uh, uh, methods to counterbalance the uh, enormous energy that it takes to stage a tour like this, whether you're trading off any, uh, 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 any of those, uh, you know, renewable energy credits and such.
0: Yes, I'm working with an organization now called One Ticket, One Tree. And that is is pretty easy to understand. It's exactly what uh, the the concept is, exactly what it sounds like. Uh, Anybody that would buy a ticket to, and it doesn't have to be rock and roll shows. It could be anything, you know, sports events, uh, and this is a, a very new concept. Uh, we've had a few Zoom calls about it. Um, I've presented it to AEG, uh, the promoter that, uh, that sponsors the Rolling Stones and other uh, big name artists. Uh, and I, I think this can be a tremendous thing. It's, it's very simple. You know, you, you have to do some calculation. You know, what is it going to cost? Uh, uh, how much can we Put from that ticket towards uh, reforestation. Uh, but the, you know, the, the the actual work is not that difficult. The, the land to find to plant is not that difficult. Uh, the team that I'm working with has all of that laid out. And there's a lot of other organizations that we can call on for assistance with that. Uh, you know, it's new, it, it's not out there yet, so to speak. But you know, when I had my first conversations, I said, guys. Let's go for the low-hanging fruit from people like Jackson Brown um, and and others, Bonnie Raitt and and other artists that we know are sympathetic. And, you know, let's talk to Leonardo DiCaprio. Let's talk to uh, these other movie people, actors and and big movers and shakers uh, that would be sympathetic to this idea. And I think it's going to come around. All right. And so I got one last question, which is, I wonder whether
4: you were on hand at the Thirsty Beaver when uh, Mick <laughs> Jagger had his famous beer because somebody had to take that picture.
0: Well, I'm going to tell you what, man. That thing made the rounds, didn't it? My heavens, it was like <laughs> for two weeks that, that was a story. You know, amazing. You know, Mick Jagger goes to this little dive bar and nobody recognizes him, and he goes out in the outdoor garden area and. I don't know if it was uh, his security guy or who took the picture. No, I wasn't with him. I, I went to a different bar. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and my my but my picture didn't make it into all the papers and uh, on TV and everything. I don't know. Maybe
4: maybe you were uh, maybe they figured out who you were were because you didn't have your ball cap on, you know, and so. You well, have-
0: <laughs> but I tell you what, I have been working on Bo, and I know you're aware of it. Uh, is the documentary that came out just a few months ago? called Chuck Lavelle, The Tree Man. And uh, this has been a lot of fun. You know, it, it, it there's three themes to the documentary. It runs about uh, a little over 90 minutes. Uh, it is available on Blu-ray and DVD, and you can also stream it on uh, Hulu and Amazon Prime. Uh, and again, it's Chuck Lavelle, The Tree Man. But the three themes are, of course, my work in music, And as we have been talking, my work in in environmentalism and in forestry. And the third theme is a love story. Lane and I have been married uh, over 48 years now. And when people ask me, well, why did you want to do this thing? And the answer is really, I wanted to do it just to have a document for my future generations. You know, we have four grandchildren now. and I also wanted it to be a snippet of time. And the time frame is kind of like from the seventies uh, on up to the present day. Uh, and uh, so it's done quite well. Uh, it's a lot of fun. We have the interviews, all the four Rolling Stones were interviewed. Um, Eric Clapton, uh, John Mayer, uh, David Gilmore, uh, you know, it, it, a, a lot of folks that I've worked with through the years and the interviews are a lot of fun. And then the footage of us uh, in the woods and Rose Lane and I together, there's a beautiful segment when we're in Paris uh, on a boat floating down the Seine River. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad people are picking up on it. And that's been a lot of fun to promote.
4: Well, it's been a lot of fun to get a chance to chat with you, and I appreciate you taking time with us. Uh, watch those fingers while you're out on the farm there, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in Atlanta on the 11th.
0: Well, it's going to be you know every time we do Atlanta. The last time was 2015, and and uh, it's like playing in my backyard, man. You know the the reaction of, and the introduction is always very strong and and very heartwarming. And, uh, you know, you'll appreciate this, Bo. When we played in 2015, I thought, you know, this, this is likely the last time I'll be with the Rolling Stones in Atlanta. And so I put a, a book together, actually a friend of mine put a book together uh, showing when the trucks came in uh, to the stadium to start the construction and then the construction of the stage goes and and then you know uh, some friends that uh, gathered and fans and whatnot, and, and then some shots of the actual show. And I thought, oh, this is a great remembrance. And and you know, uh, I'll probably never play again. Here we are; we're going to get to do it again. So I'm excited.
4: Well, uh, being that you're one of the youngsters in the group, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you you may uh,
0: you may outlast everybody, except Keith Richards, of course. <laughs> of course. I think it's time we all started thinking about what kind of world we're going to leave for Keith Richards and Will Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Wilson. <laughs> Very important. That's a good <laughs> <laughs>
4: All right, Chuck, thank you so much, sir. Have a fantastic day today. A pleasure, Bo.
0: You take care. See you in Atlanta.
2: The AJC brings you the best of what's happening in and around Atlanta on AJC.com, along with deeper looks at trends in arts and entertainment and compelling looks at lost bits of history. Here's a taste of what you'll find there. Sonny Eidecker, 76, has never been fond of reading. The Kansas native is dyslexic. He grew up in a rural home where the only books were a Bible, a dictionary, and some encyclopedias. He struggled academically in college and failed an English proficiency test. Today, he is an antiquarian book dealer. Operating inside City Antiques and Interior Arts in Roswell, Sonny Eideker Bookseller has thousands of rare titles dating to as early as 1493. They range from 18th century first edition travelogues to 17th century medical textbooks to texts from Saudi Arabia and span a multitude of languages. Read the story of his fascinating journey in this week's Living and Arts section in the Sunday Atlanta Journal Constitution on August 21st, or find it online at AJC.com and in the Sunday e-paper. Flourishing from its founding in 1849 until it was crushed by the Atlanta Constitution in 1871, the Atlanta Daily Intelligencer was the city's best source of information on the war that was devastating the country. In between accounts of the bloodshed in Shiloh and Chickamauga, the Intelligencer also offered news on local crime, gossip on drunken citizens fined for obscene language, and adverts for patent medicines guaranteed to prop up the manhood of its customers. Historian Stephen Davis and longtime journalist Bill Hendrick, an alumnus of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, spent six months reading every wartime edition of the six-day-a-week newspaper from the shelling of Fort Sumter until the surrender at Appomattox for their book, The Atlanta Daily Intelligencer Covers the Civil War. Read more about the paper and the book in Bo Emerson's story online at AJC.com. If you're listening to this podcast on AJC.com, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you'll never miss an episode. And you'll be among the first to hear our new format when we relaunch in late summer. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Ewan. And I'm your host and the AJC's arts and entertainment editor, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more great interviews and events.
1: Ocean Breeze. Tropical Beach. Pina Colada.